amen and amen. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're still talking about worship. And of course, our key scriptures are over in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets this woman at the well and a Samaritan woman, and she he has this conversation with her, and gradually she begins to realize that he's not just an ordinary Jew, but there's something about him, and because he deals with her life and says, you know, you've go get your husband, and she said, well, I don't have one. He said, that's right, you've had five. So he, he deals with issues in her life, not to condemn her as we've seen, but to, to bring her to face herself and to be willing to let God in to, to help save her and deliver her. And she gets into this discussion about worship with him, and she says, well, you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the right place to worship, and we say here on this mountain, Samaria is the right place to worship. And Jesus answered and says, the hour, you worship what you don't know, we Jews worship what we know, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers won't worship on this mountain or any other mountain. But true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And he was telling her that you Samaritans have no covenant relationship with God, so you have no basis for worship because worship's based on responding to who God is and you can have no way of knowing who God is because you don't have a covenant relationship with him. We Jews have had a covenant relationship with him and to the extent that we've been able to know who he is, we've worshipped him, but it's that whole system of sacrifices that we studied a few months ago back in the tabernacle in the temple of, De- in the, in the temple of Solomon in the temple of David. And so we talked about those, but he's saying there's a change coming where it's not based on where you worship, it's not based on the style of worship, but true worship is something different than that. But he says, my father longs for that, and we spent time looking at that. My father longs for that. So this is not our idea that we're trying to talk God into doing. This is God's heart reaching out to us to come to him when we come together especially to satisfy the longing of his heart. And that's what really this is all about. And then he says... True worshipers. In order to worship God, he said, true worship, you must be in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 24, he explains why it must be in spirit. Because he said, God is spirit. And so we've looked at why worship has to be spirit. So much of what we think is worship is really praise, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we don't understand that, we'll never come to the next highest level, which is where God's calling us to go. And that's worship. We saw that it must be in the Spirit because, first of all, God is Spirit, so that's the realm He operates in, and so that's got to be the realm that we communicate with Him, in which we communicate with Him. And that the essence of who we are, because we're spirit, soul, and body, the essence of who we are is a spirit. When you're born again, that spirit's born of God. It now has God's nature, so it can commune with Him, and that's how we can worship Him and respond to Him out of our spirit. But then we saw that, 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 that the, the spirit also means having something in common with. Koinonia, we spent some time looking at that. And that because the same spirit that's in God is in us, we share something in common with him and that worship is really an enjoyment of an expression of what we have in common with him. And then we began to look several weeks ago at the second part of this because that's not enough because true worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So again, go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll notice here there's a similar progression that you see in John chapter 4, but we're not going to talk about that right now. 
Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lifted up and sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, or the trail of his robe, filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Stop there a second. What we've seen is a pattern here, because what worship truly is, is a response to seeing who God is. The term worship in English comes from an old English word, worth, W-O-R-T-H, Ship, or recognizing that someone or something has a greater worth than you. It's a comparison. And when you see that greater worth, it elicits or triggers a response out of you appreciating that greater worth or treasure. You ever, ever go to a, an art museum? I know some of you are, do that regularly. Some of you, I remember taking, going to, to, to Washington, D.C. with all our, all our kids when they were still living at home. And, and one of the things we went to was a National Art Gallery. And, I mean, it's just room after room, gallery after gallery. You can get lost in there easily. And I remember, I mean, I've got, these, I've got two teenagers and two small boys. And I'm watching them stand in front of these masterpieces like this. I think that's interesting to watch their reaction. There's something about a masterpiece that just you stand you may not you may not understand art you may not understand what particular style that is whether it's an impressionistic or something else or neo impression whatever it is which I don't really understand I know what basically what impressionism is you know you, you may not understand the style but there's something about it that just you stand in oh. I do especially because if I were to try to draw that I look at the handiwork of a master. And you stand in awe of it because if all of us could do that, we wouldn't stand in awe of it. What makes us stand in awe of a great work of art or a great piece of music or whatever it is is because we recognize inherently that it is so far beyond our ability. We stand in awe of the talent and the, and the, and the grace from God really to do something like that. That's a little taste of what I'm talking about. It's a response to seeing something that's worth so much more than what you can do and maybe what you are in this case of God. And so we see that here with Isaiah. Isaiah was a righteous man, a godly man, but in order to qualify him to, to be a prophet, he has to have an experience. And in that experience, God shows him who he really is. Not by reading scriptures. See, we have an image of who God is by reading scriptures, by worshiping, by praying. But God took, whether it was in a vision or physically, he took Isaiah and just plunked him down in front of the throne and says, take a look. And Isaiah's reaction to this was in such awe, and then he looks at himself and realizes who he is in comparison. And so the pattern of worship is to see God for who He really is, His holiness, His majesty. His I guarantee you that if Jesus were to physically just manifest here on the platform, none of us could sit in our chairs. Say, well, isn't that nice? 
I mean, we hit the floor like that. The reason I know that is in the Old Testament, whenever angels appear, they can't stand up. They just immediately hit the floor, and the angel says, no, no, I'm not God. You stand up. Don't worship me. Because it's the glory of, a, of, a, of an angelic being is so far beyond us. We realize our mortality and our limitations. And here Isaiah's response was to see God in all of his holiness and all of his majesty. And the next thing was to suddenly realize who he is in comparison to that. Woe is me. And Isaiah was a very righteous man compared to everybody else, but not compared to who God is. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. We have no record that Isaiah had ever lied or used profanity or anything like that, but his words, even if he never spoke anything wrong, God's words are creative. God's words create things. Our words just express our opinion or our view. Just the difference in power between God's words and our words. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then what the angel does is he goes and takes a coal off of the fire, which represents the, the fire of incense, the coal of incense, which we've studied in the tabernacle, and brings it over and he touches his lips to purify his lips. But the pattern here is in order for him to, to really step out and speak for God, he has to first of all recognize who this God is he's going to speak for in all his power, glory, and majesty. Then he has to realize who he is on his own. And only then can he truly be cleansed effectively to go and speak in humility for God. And worship is involved in this. So we're talking about truth. And so the first phase of this that we started talking about two weeks ago when the last time we, we talked about this subject was the word truth in Greek is the word aletheia, which means literally nothing hidden, nothing hidden not just no hidden agenda. It's not just being sincere. It means I'm not hiding anything. What you see is what you get, is the expression we use nowadays. And so, so in order to see, to worship God, Jesus is saying we have to not just do it in spirit, but in truth. And we talked about the first aspect of that last time, and that is we have to, the first part of truth is to see God for who He is. So, well, that's obvious. Well, not so obvious. Because what we learned last time is all of us have been raised with some kind of image of Him. It was, it was given to you by your parents. Whether they were good parents or weren't good parents, they gave you some image. Whether they were with you or they weren't with you, even if you were an orphan, that gave you some image of, of God. It may be an image that God's absent. He doesn't care. So all of us, when we come to Christ, all of us, while we're living right now, have some kind of mental image. You may not be able to describe it or communicate it, but it's affecting you. It's operating in there, in your mind. And it's, it's, it's affecting your ability to know God for who He really is. So some of those images are given to us by our parents. Teachers, some of you were raised in religious schools where the image of what God was like was very stern, very strict, that if you stepped out of line, whap, somebody hit you with a ruler or something else. Or they just, they made you, they, they, they shamed you or they did something and they may have meant well, had no idea that they were forming your image of God. And then you get saved, you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you open your Bible, and you're trying to reach out to know this God, and that image is still affecting you. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it talks about, we talked about that in Renewing the Mind last year. It talks about, about things that oppose God, our knowledge of God. And it says, you know, casting down imaginations, but that word actually is reasonings. And if you study the word out, it means a, a, a system of thoughts that are in, ingrained in your mind, a pattern of thoughts, and that can be images of God, images of people. And it goes on to say, that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Wow. So there, there are patterns of thinking about God in our mind that resist what God's, the knowledge of what God's really like. So every time you read God is love, and this I've had to work on this. I grew up in a situation where love was sometimes used as a tool to manipulate. If you don't do this, that means you don't love me. And that formed an image in me of what love was like that I had to work hard to overcome. And there's still vestiges of it there sometimes. So when I come to hear, when I would go to church and hear about God is love, I would hear, my mind would say, yes, I see the words, but my, there was something in me that would resist that because it, it, that image you have determines what's going to get down in your spirit and what's not going to get down in your spirit. We see that as we look through the old the story. We talked about some of them last week. Is that the Jews, many of the religious leaders didn't recognize he was the Messiah because he didn't fit the image of what they thought he was going to be. They thought he was going to deliver them from the power of Rome. They didn't understand he was going to die first for us. So because he didn't fit the image, they didn't recognize him. I haven't had this happen lately, but I've had it happen before where I've been out you know, on a, in a store somewhere and I've had uh, somebody from church come up to oh, I didn't recognize you. Why? Because I'm not wearing a suit in the store and I'm not standing... The only place they see me is here, dressed like this. So when they see me in a different context, dressed differently, it was like people walk right by and say, oh, I didn't recognize you because you didn't fit the image I had of you. And I, this is, I, don't, I, don't, I don't go to bed in a suit. I don't walk around in a suit all the time. You know, I'm a real human being. I do the things you do. But that's my point. The disciples even had trouble grasping who he was because at the end, he says to Philip, don't you recognize you've been with me this time and you still don't realize that it's the Father in me that does these things? His hometown, he went into his hometown. This shows you how critical it is. In Mark's version, it says he could do no mighty works there except feel, heal a few minor diseases and things like a headache or something. He couldn't. Why? Because they couldn't get over the fact that this is little Jesus. We saw him grow up. He told them earlier, he says, you know, a prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown. Some of you know what I mean by that from your family. Well, that's just little so-and-so. It was just little... We knew him. We knew his father, his mother. He can't be the Messiah. We know him. So the image that they had of him interfered with their knowledge of who he really was and therefore interfered with his ability to work in their lives. So truth is critical when it comes to worshiping God because worship is a response for seeing Him as He really is. So we have to be open to see Him as He really is, not as we think He really is. The second aspect of that is sometimes we form images of Him because we want Him to be a certain way. We may want Him to be a sugar daddy to us. You know what I mean by that? Oh, He meets all my needs. Of course, I have no responsibilities. God is love, and therefore He does everything I want Him to do. But that teaching has gone such to an extreme that there are people out there, and this is not new, teaching there's no hell. 
Why? Because God wouldn't ultimately send people to hell because he's a loving God. I know it says it in the Bible, but that's just kind of the jerk the slack out of us, but it can't really mean that. That's universalism. And that's being taught today. There's popular churches that are out there teaching that. But that's not what the Bible says he is, and that's not what the truth the Bible teaches. That's when I impose what I want him to be, and the Bible has a term for that. It's called idolatry. It's making my own image of who God is and worshiping that. And that's what we left off last week. But there's two sides to this. The second side to this is not only did Isaiah have to see the truth about who God is, but then Isaiah's reaction was to face the truth about himself. So the second side of the element by which truth works in regard to worship is not just being open to see who God is, but then being open to see who I am in relation to God. I'm not talking about saved. I know we're saved, but you'll see what I'm talking about as we go through this. All right. Go to Genesis 25. Excuse me, Genesis 2. I've talked about this, but I want you to see this. Because remember, the Holy Spirit's role in worship, one of His roles, is to, is to, to reveal in our spirit this God we're worshiping. So we have to be open to receive what revelation He wants to give us. But the other side of this is He wants to show us who we are in comparison to Him, and we have to be open to allow Him to show us the truth about ourselves. And this can be trickier than the first part. This is the story of the creation of Adam and Eve. It's chapter 1 and then chapter 2. He's created the man, he's pulled the woman out of her, brought her to him, and Adam says, Whoa! That's not quite what he said, but he says... This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But I can't imagine. He just says, that's nice. This is bone of my bone. I believe he was excited because God did a wonderful thing. The Bible says that when God gives you a wife, he gives you a good thing. Right, men? Amen. Ah, You missed a good opportunity there. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. In other words, they were, had nothing covered or hidden from God or each other or themselves. And I believe the major reason they could do that, there were two. One is their eyes were completely on God. Because remember, they're seeing Him the way Isaiah saw Him in the vision. They're seeing there's no film, there's no smoke, there's no cloud, there's no vision. They're seeing Him Eyeball to eyeball. They're seeing him just as he is because there's no reason because there's no sin in their life because they're still just as he made them. So they're not hiding anything. There's nothing to hide. They're pure, holy, and righteous just as he's pure, holy, and righteous because that's how he made them. So there's nothing to hide. Wouldn't it be nice if the Bible just ended there? And it came on down to your generation and my my parents' generation and me and and we just all were born just like that but there's Genesis chapter 3. And of course, that's the story. Satan comes in to to mess this up, to get this out of of alignment. We've talked about that in other contexts before. What he does, of course, is he gets them to take things into their own hands, literally the fruit into their own hands. Now notice 
the response. They've now sinned. They've now sinned. And let's go over and look at verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it and so also gave to her husband with her and he ate it. Now look at verse 7. And the eyes of both of them were opened. We're talking about seeing truth. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and look what they did when they found out they were naked. They now saw their nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves together, and listen carefully, they made for themselves coverings. They now see something to be ashamed of. And their response to that was to make for themselves something to cover up what was now exposed. All right? You with me? Okay. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the first thing is, they're now look at themselves... And they realize that there's something now to be ashamed of. And the moment they realize there's something to be ashamed of, their instinct is to hide that by making for themselves something to cover what they're now ashamed of. And then they heard God coming to church. Oh, excuse me. They heard God walking in the garden. And they hid themselves they hid themselves from the presence of God. We're talking about worship is a response to seeing who God is and seeing who I am on my own and responding to His goodness, His graciousness, His majesty. And they saw him that way in Genesis 1 and 2. They saw him for who he is. They saw themselves for who they were, but now they're not who they were before because they've rebelled against his word now. They've now sinned, and now they're aware of their sin. They're aware of that, and they're ashamed. So they, to protect themselves from that being exposed, they make for themselves something to cover up what they don't want themselves to see and they don't want God to see. And they cover it up and now they hear God's calling them. Just as when we come here, it's called a call to worship. God is drawing us to be in His presence. And instead of running to Him the way they would have before, they're now hiding from the presence of God. They're hiding from the presence of God. All right, let's go on. So the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked or exposed, and I hid myself. 
All right. Now that's a wonderful thing to study in Genesis. It's nice to go back and look and see what happened back then. But obviously we're not looking at this for just some nice historical biblical story, but we're looking at it because this is an exact example of what we do when we come to worship or to pray. Because all of us are aware of our own imperfections to some degree. All of us are aware that we fall short of the glory of God in ourselves. I'm not talking about in Christ. I'm talking about in ourselves. We're all aware of that. And each one of us, to some degree or other, has found some way to protect ourselves from other people seeing that. We've made our own fig leaves. It's called a self-image. Ooh. It's the, when it was a nice story until then, wasn't it? We've all formed some kind of image of what, how we want other people to see us. And I'm talking about spiritually especially. We're conscious of our image of how other people... That's why we, one of the reasons we take so much care, most of us, to dress the way we do. Or even if we don't, it's to you know, have an image. I remember going in college. It was it was in the '60s, and you know, the cool thing was to dress in army jackets and you know be. We don't want to conform to society, so we all dress the same way to not conform with society. Because <laughs> we're all concerned with how other people think of it. It's called peer pressure. And I don't care whether you're, you know, in fifth grade or you're 50. We're concerned with fear, peer pressure. Fear pressure. What's well, another way of expression? We're concerned with how other people see us. So we do things to create the image of how we want people to see us. Now, here's where it gets tricky. We also do that with God. We want God to see us a certain way. Because we want to be loved and accepted by God. See, we do with God. Until our mind's renewed to what the Word of God says, we're going to do with God what we do with other people. The habits and the thinking patterns that you've developed in learning how to relate to other people growing up and basically getting what you need from them, whether it's their approval or acceptance or whatever it is, we've all learned how to do that. And I was the oldest of five boys. Because of that, I knew how to get things from my mother better than the other four did. So when a real crisis came up, they came to me and said, you know, you know the timing and you know how to approach her because I've been around long enough. I know her lo- longer. Because we figure this out. You start a new job, you start figuring out what are, the, what are the unwritten rules here. I know there's rules in a handbook, but there's some unwritten rules. So you try to figure out, you know, why? So we can be accepted how to work within the system to get what we need. And we do that with each other in terms of relationships. But we also bring that pattern of thinking to God. And we're going to see it doesn't work that way. So we form an image of ourselves, and then we try to sell that image to each other, and we try to sell that image to God. And that's basically what Adam and Eve did. We built a covering because here's why. We're afraid of others to see us the way we really are. And we're afraid of God to see us the way we really are. And what we're going to learn in a minute, even more than that, we're afraid afraid ourselves of seeing 
what we're really like. Down deep in our heart, I'm talking about. Our motives. Now, here's the problem. When we do that, we've created a barrier against knowing God. Because when I create a wall to keep people out, to, 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 keep, to protect myself, I've also created a barrier to keep people out. So when I have this image of myself that I'm trying to present to God, and this can be very subtle, you may not even be conscious that you're doing it, but it's one of these barriers, then what happens is as the Spirit of God's trying to reveal to me who He is and also to reveal to me what I'm like, we're afraid to find out what we're like because to do that, I've got to take the fig leaves off. I've got to take the fig leaves off. I've got to take the self-image off that maybe I'm not quite the... It was interesting. I'm reading, and I've told you this before, I'm reading a biography of Charles Finney. I've read it a number of times. I'm, I'm reading the... We have the abridged version in the bookstore, but I'm reading the unabridged version now. And, and there's a story in there where there's a man he's living with in, in a, while he's in this community preaching. And it's, this uh, guy's been trying, to get, been trying to get saved. And, of course, God's will is to save him, but he just keeps filling this block there and finally, he, he had a breakthrough and because he, he said to Finney, he said, I finally got, the breakthrough was, he said, I heard you preach. And he said, I decided to stop lying to God. And he said, how, do you, how were you lying to God? I was telling God what my intentions were. Well, Lord, I really mean to do this and I really mean to do this and I really mean to do this and I really mean to do this. And the Lord says, if you meant to do it, you'd do it. And so what we do is we often, there's a great book out there called Learning to Tell Yourself the Truth. Right? You have, you have any, if you, we lie to ourselves more than we realize. We make excuses just by the way we word things. Just by the way we word things. The story I heard about a woman who came to counseling and the, and the counsel, Christian counseling, the Christian counselor said, well, what's your problem? She said, I'm a pastor's wife and the real problem is my life's been terrible since my husband made us move to this community. And he stopped her a second. He said, did he tie you up with duct tape and throw you in the trunk and bring you here? No, 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 no. I didn't mean that. What? You said he made you move here. Well, no, 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 no. He, just, he decided God called us to come here, and so I had to come. No, you didn't. You could have stayed there. It may have cost you something, but somewhere you chose to come with your husband. And see, when she said he made me, it took all the responsibility off of her. So she never had to face that part of what she was going through was the result of choices she'd make. They may not have been desirable choices. They may not have been easy choices. But somewhere inside, she exercised her will to be there. But when she said, he made me, that took all of that off of her. And that was a way of avoiding facing truth. And we do this with God all the time. And the problem is that creates a barrier for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what we're really like. Because we don't want to know what we're really like so often. And here's why that's, such a, that's a trap. Here's why that's a trap. I'll sell you up before we're done. All right? Sometimes it's because we're afraid to see ourselves as we really are. But this covering covers us from seeing God as He really is and allowing the Spirit of God to work in our lives. Now, here's the principle. If you get nothing out of this else out of this morning, you need to get this. Grace. God's wonderful love and grace can only be received by us 
to the degree that we see that we need it. God's grace can only be revealed as an experience in our life to the extent that we realize we need that grace. And I'm going to show you an example of what I mean, several examples. This is holding a number of us back, including me in some areas. God's love and majesty can only be received to the degree that we see we need His love. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll look at Paul's story here. Verse 3. For we are of the circumcision who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, it may not be apparent from verse 3, but in some ways he's saying the same thing Jesus said over in John chapter 4, that in order to worship God, it must be in spirit and in truth. Because what he's talking about here, when he talks about the real circumcision, he's talking about the difference between the law of the Old Testament and the grace of the New Testament. Because what was happening is they were coming into the churches, like in Philippi here, they were coming in teachers saying that, yes, you know, Jesus came to die for our sins, but you still got to keep all the commandments, not the commandments, all the practices of the Old Testament. You got to do the sacrifices of the, of the tabernacle. You got to go through all those rituals and believe in Christ. And so you have to be circumcised under the old covenant in order to be a Christian is what he was saying here. And, of course, that issue had been settled back in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 15, when there was a council in Jerusalem and the Spirit of God showed them, no, this is something new. This physical act of circumcision was an act under the covenant, the old, the Abrahamic covenant, but the fulfillment of that covenant, that circumcision is not with the fel- in the flesh, that circumcision is done in the Spirit. It's a cutting away of the heart, of the hardness on, on, in, the, in, the, on, uh, in the callous of the heart, and it's making our heart sensitive. So there's a, the, 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 the things of the New Testament, the things of the New Covenant are not something done in the flesh. There's something that's done in the Spirit is what he's talking about. So we of the circumcision, the true worshipers, worship in spirit, and look at this, and put no confidence in the flesh. And put no confidence in the flesh. Or in other words, what our flesh or our own actions contribute to this worship. Now remember in the garden, they've sinned. God shows up to get an accounting of it, and instead of allowing God to deal with that in their lives, they attempt to deal with it themselves by covering up and hiding what they've done from God. Of course, you can't do that, but when you try to hide it from God, you never hide it from God, you hide it from yourself. Now, we may spend some time on this because I know this is a little, it can be a little hard to see this, but it's very, very important. Very important. So Paul's saying that we who worship, true worship, we don't worship the way they did by physical acts of worship. We worship in the spirit. And now he's going to talk to you about not putting confidence in the flesh. The confidence in the flesh is anything I do that determines who I am in God's sight. Anything I contribute to it. All right? You following me? All right. 
Verse 4. Now Paul's going to talk here about things in his life that he has put confidence in in terms of his... This is his self-image. Paul's now going to describe the image that he had of himself and how he wanted to be seen by others and to be seen by God. That we put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he have confidence in the flesh, I do more so. In other words, anybody who have reason of confidence in himself, I have more reason than most others. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel. So he's going through how he was raised in complete conformity with the requirements of the law at that time. Of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, I excelled in everything we were supposed to do. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. I was the, the real in-group, the top group. Concerning zeal, now he's talking about not his position. I mean, it might be like saying, you know, I no longer trust in these things, but, but I've, been to, I've been to divinity school. I've got a PhD in theology. Because Paul had, the, in essence, the equivalent of that. And, and, and I'm a I'm a bishop. I'm a Pharisee in his case. I'm not a bishop, but I mean somebody could say, and I'm, I have this title and this position. That's who I am. That's my image. I see a lot of that out there. I get emails from, so, you know, with a title. Pastor Sam used to have this expression, or maybe it was Bob Gass, somebody, you know. If we go to hell, the titles burn off. If we go to heaven, they fall off. So they don't do any good in any place that's eternal. But people hold on to those as their image. I am Dr. So-and-so. I have a doctor in such-and-such. And that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with an education. There's nothing wrong with getting doctorates in multiple... As long as that's not what you've invested your image in. It's not... Wow. Then I get concerned when people are always saying, but I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm Prophet So-and-so. I'm a Papa, whatever it is. And I present that as who I am. That's what I'm talking about. Paul says, I, if I wanted to do that, I could do that. I was born of one of the best tribes. I was the best of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. That was a limited class of people. Now look what he's going to talk about. Now he's going to talk about his own heart, his own intentions. Verse 6, concerning zeal. In other words, my passion for the things of God. I was persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness of the law, how I live myself and how I conducted in the sight of other people and God, I was blameless. Of course, none of us were blameless. What things were gained to me. See, Paul says, this is how I saw myself. So I didn't need Christ. I was blameless. I didn't need a Savior. I was blameless under the law. I was recognized by my peers as being at the top a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was passionate for God. I had a zeal. I was persecuting and arresting and trying to destroy this new sect that was going to injure the faith, that Christian sect way it was called back then. 
concerning how I live my life compared to everybody else. I was righteous under the law. So why would he need any, why would he need any grace? Why would he need Christ? He's got this image he's trying to uphold and he's talking about that image right now. I've never seen it in this context before. Verse 7, But what things were gained to me, what I got out of this image, what I got out of what I'd invested my life in, what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ's sake. I put my image down. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul saying, I couldn't know him. And the word know there is a Greek word epinosis, which means to know by experience, not just concept or idea, but to know, have a relationship with. I could never know him and the excellence of knowing him unless I'd let go of all that effort that I'd put into how I wanted others to see me and how I wanted to see me. Because if my investment is in my own fig leaves, they're blocking me from knowing what he's really like. We'll go on and see that more in a minute. Oh, Lord. Okay. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, my own image, my own fig leaves, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, I couldn't receive, this is what keeps people, some people out of the kingdom of God, is they don't want to let go of their own image. They don't want to let go of what they've made of themselves to allow God to come in and make of them what only he can make. a righteousness which is from God by verse 10, that I may know Him. I let all this go, so there it is again, so that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, that's, and being conformed to His death, that's the death of that old man. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, not that I've already attained it yet, or I'm already perfected, verse 12, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. So he said, I'm not arrived there yet, but I see what the goal is. Go with me to Luke chapter 7. We'll see this in another context. It's a story of a woman. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of, his fore, of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. And the Pharisees, who had an image of themselves that they wanted projected to each other and they wanted to project it to God, the Pharisees, who had invited him, saw this and he spoke to himself, inside himself, saying, if this man really were a prophet, then he would know what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I've said, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when he had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? 
And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave more. He said, you have answered, you have judged rightly. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the head of her hair of her head, hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? For she loved much, but to him who loves little is forgiven. But to him who little is forgiven, the same loves little. He then said to her, your sins are forgiven you. This story is often used as an example of that she was worshiping him. But notice what her worship was. It was a response to seeing with her inner eyes the grace and the forgiveness that he brought and as an opportunity to her. And the man with the position, the man with the big image, the man with the big title into whose house who proudly invited the rabbi in who was so popular to teach so he could tell people, the rabbi ate at my house today. He graced my house today. And this man had no concept of the grace that was being offered to him in Christ. And he never said anything outward, but Jesus perceived the inner thinking of his heart. And he said, Simon, Simon, this woman's a great sinner, as you said. She's right, you're right. But because this woman has admitted she's a great sinner, because she's faced the truth about herself, because she's pulled the fig leaves off and is willing to reveal to God, to herself and to others what she really is like, she's been forgiven everything she revealed. And because she's been forgiven everything she's been revealed, she loves much in response. But see, the problem is, when we try to hide between an image or the fig leaves we've built because we're afraid to face really what our intentions of our heart are like. When we're really afraid to face what what am I really like? What, What am I really like? What happens is we're hiding the truth from the Holy Spirit able to show us how gracious God wants to be to us. It's only to the degree you've faced what you're really like, can you truly receive and experience how wonderful God's grace is? And so the second part of the importance of truth has to do with being willing to look at who I really am, why I needed Him to save me, why I needed His grace. See, a woman like this or people, and some of you in here today, have been saved out of such obvious places of sin that, that you know you know what you were like. But there are a lot of us that weren't. Or we formed images as a Christian over the time. That this is who I am as a Christian. This is what I'm like. And we tie it with our position. We tie it with our intentions of our heart. We tie it with all kinds of things about ourselves as how we're standing before God, to be seen by God, to be seen and accepted by ourselves, to be seen and accepted by other people. And we don't realize what we're doing is we're putting up a wall so that it it affects our ability to worship because we come in with just a little bit of confidence in ourselves. 
just a little bit of confidence in how faithful we've been, a little bit of confidence in how true we've been, a little bit of confidence about something about myself. And that part of me, that attitude, restricts the Spirit of God's ability to show me what He's like and what I'm like so that I can truly treasure the grace and the love that He's lavished upon me. Can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see that? Turn with me quickly, very quickly, to Hebrews chapter 4. And now we'll sell you up. But of course, Christ has paid for your sin. I'm not talking about whether we're going to heaven or not. I'm talking about whether we receive the fullness of what God's love is really like, whether we receive the fullness about what God's grace is really like, whether we receive the fullness of what God's really like. Verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest, lest some fall short of it uh, through the same example of disobedience. I'm not going to talk about that yet. For the Word of God is living powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. And look at this. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God under the anointing of the Spirit can get into your heart and touch motives and intents that we may not even be conscious are there. You don't need to go looking for them. I'm not talking about going on some kind of witch hunt in your life and tearing yourself up. I'm talking about not putting an obstacle to the Holy Spirit, putting His finger on something or shining light on something. Look at verse 13. There's no creature hidden from His sight. So I don't, He sees through fig leaves. He sees through images. He sees through titles. He sees through positions. He sees through our righteousness. He sees us as we don't even see ourselves. He knows the very the most wicked thoughts you've ever had. He knows the motives and intents of your heart. But He's not shining His light on it to condemn you. There's no creature hidden from His sight. But all things are, look, naked and open, just like they were in the book of, in chapter 2 of Genesis. All things are naked and open to Him with whom we must give an account. Oh, here's the good news. We're not alone facing Him. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we have a high priest who does sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. That word boldly doesn't mean just crash the door open and walk in. It means openly holding nothing back. You don't have to hide anything. You can come with the fig leaves off. You can come completely exposed. That's what that word means. Why? Because we have a high priest who's standing there to represent you. Come boldly to what? A throne of grace. But that you only treasure how much grace it is the more openly you come that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need go over to chapter 10 verse 19 
It's talked about what Christ has done for us, and this is what the therefore refers to. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, that's that same word, openness, confidence, without any reservation, any restrictions, to enter the holiest, that's the holy of holies we studied in the tabernacle. It's part of why I went through that study, so you can understand this. We can come into that holy of holies where the ark was that the other priest couldn't come into. The high priest had to come in one day a year and he had to be dressed in the right right uniform, having done the right ritual. But you and I can walk boldly in without any reservation, just as we are. Come boldly, come boldly in to the holy of holies. Because of our high priest. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. That veil has been pulled away, which was his flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God, he represents you. That's why you can come in with your stains and your, and your, our, our nasty motives sometimes and our bad thoughts about some people. We can come to him. Why? Because we have in place an advocate. A high priest who represents us before God 24 hours a day and ever lives to make intercession for you and me. He's pleading our cause when we come in there to worship, to pray. Because of that, verse 22, let us draw near with a true or sincere heart. That word true and sincere is the same word aletheia, which means open without holding anything back. That's the heart he's talking about. Not having good intentions. He's having a heart that's hiding nothing. That's willing to let go of anything. And bring it under his grace. Bring it under his love. Bring it in the light of the Holy Spirit. So he can show me what's in there. So that I can respond in love and worship to a God who knew all that inside of me. He knew those innermost thoughts. He knew those times I'd smile with this nice spiritual smile thinking, oh God, I wish you'd kill him. No, I'm not thinking that now. He knows those little nasty thoughts you don't want to tell anybody. He knows them all. Come in, don't hide it. I bring it into your mercy and grace and ask you to forgive me. And then when you experience that, what comes out is like the woman with the alabaster vial jar. She, you will worship him because I know what I'm like and I see how you've forgiven me. I know what I'm capable of and I see how you've loved me. And instead of putting judgment on me, you poured out and lavished your grace and mercy on me. How could I not worship you? How could I not honor how good you are? But I can't do that if I'm not willing to deal in truth. Not just about who he is, but who I am as a worshiper. The very best of us in worships in, 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 in Christendom, the very best, with the biggest names, God's not impressed. God's not impressed with our worship. I don't care what, who you may name. God's not, God's not impressed. Did you read what the angels were doing? He's not impressed with that. But we're not here to impress Him. We're here to love Him. We're here to respond to the love that He's lavished upon us. We're here to respond to who He really is. And so to worship Him in spirit 
and to worship him in, worship him in truth means to be willing to lay aside all the images of who he is and allow the Spirit of God to introduce him to us through the Word of God and through our time with him in prayer and in worship and to allow the Spirit of God to reveal to us who we really are in light of him so that we can respond to his grace and his mercy. And then the question is, are we willing? Are we willing? Well, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, God is at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. He's drawing us to himself. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for everyone that's heard this message. I trust that it came across with what, the way you had put it in my heart. And I ask you to give us ears, Lord, to hear what you were saying to us this morning. That none of us leave here today feeling condemned or less, but instead we feel, Lord, your grace and mercy that says, I already know everything about you anyway. Trust me enough to talk to me about it. Help us to stop hiding from the truth about ourselves, Lord, and the things that are down in our hearts that still have not yet been changed we might truly know your grace and your mercy. Holy Spirit, I trust you now to take what's been shared and to do in all of our hearts that work that only you can do. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.